You are now tuned in to the Decoding Success Podcast, where we reveal game-changing habits, formulas, and routines from the world's most successful individuals to help you think and live larger. Welcome to the show, ladies and gentlemen. You are rocking with your host, Matt Labrie, on an all-new episode of the Decoding Success Podcast. What we have approaching is that two-year anniversary. You've heard me say it on the last episode, but if it's your first time tuning in, I got to fill you in on that amazing news. We are about to hit that two-year anniversary mark and what we have in store for you from here on out. And what we've already been able to bring to the table is truly tremendous and really just want to express the gratitude that we all have here at Decoding Success for each and every one of you that are tuning into this. So again, if you're new, welcome to the show. Super excited to have you. And if you're a returning member of our amazing community of listeners, super stoked to continuously have you back here, you know, tuning into this show for your value, for your insights, for your experiences from some of the world's most game-changing individuals. And nothing is changing with that today. In fact, we have the $6 billion man in the house today, often referred to as the man behind the brands. Mr. Bernd Ullman has been the trusted business acceleration expert by top fashion moguls and CEOs such as my former boss, Damon John, Eddie Lampert, and Tommy Hilfiger. Burnt is arguably the world's leading expert in celebrity brand development, brand management, licensing and distribution, and monetization having contributed to the successful launches of brands for clients including J-Lo, Adam Levine, Nicki Minaj, and many, many more including, I'm just going to throw it in there, Bethany Frankel, really big name going around right now for the ladies, and also Catherine Zeta-Jones and her brand. The brands he has worked with have generated over $6 billion in global sales, and again, that's with a B, so we're talking big bucks here, we're talking big insights, big experiences, big knowledge coming directly to you today, so you've chose no better place to be than where you are right now as you're listening to this. Again, really excited to be able to amplify Burnt's message to all of you that are tuned in today. What I'm going to ask you to do is to make sure you're sharing this episode as I always do. Share it on social, tag us on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, wherever you're listening to. And also not just social, but maybe you're a more private person and we're cool with that as well. Send this in that group chat where you have a whole bunch of memes going on, right? Send this in your mastermind groups to your coworkers, your staff and beyond. People will truly appreciate you being that beacon of light for them. But now without further ado, we bring to you our friend, Bernd Ullman. Bernd, my man, it is a pleasure to finally connect with you and amplify your message here on Decoding Success. So I want to express my gratitude for you hopping on and say thank you. Matt, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Zooming in, you know, from now uh, the lovely uh, West Coast. I am actually, you know, I, I, I fled the pandemic in New York to California because I thought that would be a really brilliant move. Uh, only to now wake up to the news that California has now surpassed uh, oh. the COVID, uh, you know, cases uh, of it, New York, and they're the leader in the country. It's like, okay, what can you do? What can you do, right? What can you do? Yeah. The best we could do is, you know, make most of the time we have, and I'm glad That's that we're it. doing that here. You That's know, what we're doing yeah. exactly. So, first question for you, Burn, to kick things off. This is how we kick off the show, and I'm really excited to hear this from you. How do you personally define success? Yeah, so so that's a great question, and and I guess you know you get probably as many answers as as you ask the question. To to me, success is not about attaining any type of, uh, should we say, personal value or uh, success is not measured by uh, you know my bank account or anything like that. Um, Personal success for me is really two things. Number one, it's about my family, obviously, uh, healthy, wealthy, but, uh, you know, maybe strike the wealthy because it's more healthy, happy, um, mm. uh, and, and just kind of sort of able to, to, to handle the day to day. And then it's more, you know, success is more really about what I can do for others, not to say sound too altruistic, but. Uh, I feel the greatest measure of personal success when I feel that I can bring value or be useful or help someone um, succeed. So success for me is when people I deal with uh, are seeing success in addition to, as I said, knowing that my family is, is, is taken care of. That's success. 
I love that. And I definitely resonate with everything you said, especially when it comes down to, you know, being able to help other people. I find the utmost fulfillment in that. Uh, it's a beautiful thing, but I'm really curious, like what is making burnt happy these days? Like what is happiness for you? So, you know what? Um, so, okay. Listen, I'm highly competitive. Okay. Trapped in a not too athletic body. So <laughs> I, I was never, you know, the big athletes uh, getting a great kick out of adrenaline rush from what I could account, accomplish on the court or a field. So to me, it, happiness is actually derived from um, working and doing business and, and handling negotiations and, and being kind of in the field and doing what we are doing now. This is happy. This is kind of awesome right? Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Awesome. Good stuff, man. That's awesome. So I'm really curious to understand how you got to where you are today. So before, before getting into that, I kind of want to just backtrack to kind of get the full story here. I'm really curious to learn who burnt was in high school, right? Like what was the dream back then? How were you defining success back then? All right. So, so that's very different. I grew up in Norway. You know, you, you may have picked up on the fact that I speak with an accent, right? So I love uh, Norway, as, by the way, I, yeah, I was I there in 2018. I, 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 right. I, except for the fact that a salmon burger cost me 55 American dollars. Uh, aside from that, it was beautiful. Yeah, so I grew up in Oslo, and quite frankly, if you see, you know, my background, that's actually a picture I took last time I was there down just uh, uh, the harbor. Uh, in Oslo. So that's the Oslo Fjord. So Norway Beautiful. is famous for its fjords. Anyway, yeah. So in, in case anyone was listening and thinking, ah, I hear an accent. The guy must be from Brooklyn. It's like, no, <laughs> <laughs> I, I am from Oslo, Norway. So it started there. And, and in terms of uh, high school, I, I think, you know, the story is a little too long. I'm a bit older than you. So I'm going to have to do the fast track. But but once upon a time, I thought that I was actually going to enter the field of medicine. And uh, this goes back so far that uh, all communication was done through the mail. There was a postal strike the year that I was applying to med school. And they didn't get my application. So I had to reboot and, and took a year in business school uh, just because I had a lost year because of this mail strike right. and business resonated. And when it was time again to apply, you know, I was like, yeah, med school was cool, but I ended up applying to, to business school. I was accepted uh, to a number of school, but Copenhagen um, uh, business school was, you know, Copenhagen is a different country, but the reality is the Scandinavian countries are small. So it was a skip and a jump. And in, in my case, a ferry ride away. <laughs> and uh, I went to a Copenhagen Business School where I um, got first a BA, then an MBA. And while being there, I started Scandinavia's first home delivery of pizza. So wow. pizza pronto. So that's when I kind of learned my first business lessons. So that's kind of where kind of a lot of this came from. So I guess I had a little bit of an entrepreneurial streak. And I learned the very, very important lesson of you get only one shot at making a first impression. And if you will indulge me, I give the one minute version of that story. I was a business uh, you know, student, full I felt I'd learned a lot. So I applied it all. I started this, you know, Scandinavia's first home delivery of pizza. I had pizza trucks. And of course I had done, you know, the name and the phone number plastic on the side of the trucks, everything I had learned in school. And back then, not too many ways of reaching the market. There was one major paper that was dominant, the weekend paper. Uh, and I came to them with a story, Norwegian student in Denmark, pizza, the Italian concept, home delivery, never been seen. They loved it. I got the full feature. I owned that page. So I was like, okay, I have made, I have made it. I've made it even before I've launched. I'm not even out of school. And I'm so successful, I can barely stand it. So they shot the feature, took the picture, me standing next to my truck, pointing, you know. Okay. Then the big day came. We opened for business at 3 o'clock. People picked up their, you know, newspaper at 7 a.m. in the morning and started calling. 
within a couple of hours, long before we actually opened, the phone system had broken down because of overcapacity. I got emergency lines up. I got friends and family to come and help picking up and answering the phone. The truck started to go out with the pizzas. First truck number one broke down, then truck number two broke down. Those are all the trucks I had. Wow. So now I have two stalled trucks. Eventually, we delivered cold, soggy pizzas three to four hours after people had called for them. And honestly, if it wasn't for the fact that you know home delivery pizza is such a damn good idea, I would have been out of business before I even started. So that was the importance of, uh, you know, you get one shot of making your first impression. So wow. you might as well make it a good one. Right. That's yeah. incredible. Right. Long lead into your question, but that was kind of the start anyway. That's incredible. So how did fashion come about? Was it just something that came came to you or did you go searching for it? So it came like so many other things in life by coincidence. Mm. Another story full of stories. So I love them. Bring them I, on. <laughs> so at this point, um, I'm kind of sort of uh, done with school. And it was time to figure out, you know, what's next? Was I going to be a pizza executive and stay in Copenhagen or what? Uh, I go on vacation because, you know, I've been working so hard as students with one of my good friends who had actually, or best friends, who, who had gone to, um, to, to take his MBA. He left Copenhagen. He went to University of San Francisco. So, and it's summer and he has come back from, from, from San Francisco as he always did. And we decided we were so exhausted from all our harsh studies that we needed to go to a pizza for three weeks to rest up. So we went to a pizza and, you know, we were up all night and slept on the beach all day and whatever else we did. And towards the end of that stay where we have been relaxing so much that we can barely, you know, stand on our feet at this point and, <laughs> we are, you know, coughing, hollow coughs and all of that. We're sitting in a dark bar and we're talking and he had started the business and we were kind of the only guys from, from school that had started businesses. So we're like, you know what? If we pool our resources, if you and I partner up, you know, we will be unstoppable. So like, great. And then he says, however, I don't want to do pizzas. And I could then do no less. So he was in home improvement. So like, I don't want to do home improvements, which was a huge mistake. He went back to that later. And, you know, he's long done, independently wealthy, did phenomenally well in home improvement. Be that as it may. So pizza and home improvement was out. We needed to find something else. So we look at each other and we're like, we're both wearing clothes. Okay, we're going to start a clothing business. So wow. we started the clothing business, yeah. So uh, we are from Norway, so we founded Nor Partners uh, because we're Norwegian partners. Right. And he thought the U.S. was kind of really cool, so he wasn't done. So he was like, I don't really want to come home yet. So I'm like, all right, it's cool. I can come over. So originally we were going to move to San Francisco and start a business. Then he started to look into it and he's like, you know what? San Francisco isn't a fashion epicenter. So he's like, it should actually be New York. But he's like, I like the West Coast better. So I was like, okay, well, is there another? Yeah, LA. He said, LA is kind of bigger when it comes to fashion. So, okay, I'll move to LA. So I moved to LA. We founded Nord Partners and we started, uh, you know, in the fashion industry. That's incredible. That's the, yeah. I love it. And I love it. I, and listen, I got to say, I've been to Ibiza, but you're, you're mentioning all these places. What's your favorite place to travel to? Oh, my goodness. Uh, what we haven't talked about is once upon a time, I was in charge of international business for Donna Karen. So I opened 85 flagship stores under license all over the world. So I've been a lot of places. Um, I have to say, though... Other than some of the staples like a Paris, which, you know, there, there are certain major international cities that just has this phenomenal draw. Uh, the Greek islands, you know, the Greek island is probably my favorite. Food okay. is amazing. Weather is amazing. People are incredibly friendly. Uh, of all the places. But again, you know, that's tough because each and every place has something unique or something special. 
and or you just had like a really great or unique unique experience that makes it special to you. Right, so. right. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> anyway. I'm always curious. Yeah, I'm always curious. Yeah, I, I know that you you mentioned Ibiza. I've been, I was in Ibiza right before I was in Oslo. Right. So it's just funny you mentioned both of those places. That's awesome. But yeah, yeah I'm no, Ibiza curious. Is great. I mean, and I used yeah. to go a lot. So, but, yeah. <laughs> so, Bernd, tell me, you know, you 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 launched this venture with your friend, Nor Partners. Yeah. What yeah. turbulence did you face on? Like, was it, was it peaches and cream, which it, it might as well could have been, right? Or, you know, did you have sure. some turbulence? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I, I haven't really heard of any business leader that's our entrepreneur that just started the business and they were just served up peaches and cream all the way to right. uh, eternity. <laughs> so I would say not only peaches and cream, um, However, you know, we learned a lot. Uh, I, I probably in that short stint learned, you know, more than I did through all of my years in business school. Mm-hmm. So what, what happened was we basically uh, first started out, we didn't know a lot. So we hired uh, some local talent reps and they had great relationships. So we ended up getting uh, a presence with our lemon clothing from Italy no idea what the lemon was. Uh, so we got presents with lemon in all the leading stores. So back in the day, that meant Barnes, Fred Siegel, uh, iMagnon, uh, Bloomingdale's, Nordstrom's, all of these stores bought our line. We didn't even know that that was great, but that was great. So in the beginning, things were kind of phenomenal. So with, with that kind of early success, which we just took for granted, we had uh, one year where we kind of uh, switched everything because we had to get ready for growth. So mm. we got new offices, you know, new showrooms, all new business machines, new cars, new house, even new girlfriends. We were just not holding back on anything because we were ready for success. Uh, then um, there was a major, major shift in the market where uh, this is back in probably uh, late 86 or early 87. And there was a ma- massive, massive currency shift. And, and we, you know, we, we placed letters of credits, LCs with our uh, vendor from from Italy. So all of a sudden, overnight, the the prices had changed by over 30%. Everything had gone up by 30%. And we couldn't very well pass that on to all of our customers. So uh, we were speaking to our vendor, you know, hey, we need you to work with us. And they said, great, we have an LC. And they just threw down on the LC. And, and that kind of put us already in a tough spot. In addition, because we weren't necessarily too well-versed uh, at the time of how to really conduct business, we had started with what's called factoring, uh, which is a really, obviously, smart way if you're selling of doing business. And factoring is, in essence, where you have a large company assuming, a financial company assuming the credit risk. They go out and they evaluate the consumer and they say, they give you a credit line. They're saying, well, this customer, you can sell up to $10,000. And then what they do against the fee, they advance you a certain percentage of that order right away. So the way for a company to be capitalized. Well, we were so clever that we started out and we were saying, "Hmm, this factory company, they're really cramping our style. You know, this one store, he's a cool guy. And they're saying we can only sell him $10,000, but he wants to buy $50,000. Yeah, we're going to take the order. So we did that a few times and then a couple of times more. By the time we were done, we, you know, a couple of, uh, you know, partners from Norway, uh, we were carrying over 50% of our paper ourselves, meaning we had the credit risk of over 50% of our order book. Then this thing happened with the market. The Italians threw down on the LC. And uh, we got to really realize why the factoring companies had credit lines because the really cool guy that wanted to buy 50,000, well, I still remember his name today, Robert from Canada. I kept on calling Robert. Hey, Robert, man, what's going on? Yeah, and in the beginning, Robert was cool enough to take my calls. Eventually, you know, he didn't even pick up, but of course he never paid. This happens, you know, repeatedly. So your peaches and cream was, in essence, we went from being in every leading store 
uh, to being staggered financially mm. and, and ultimately kind of needed to kind of regroup. Um, and, and I took a stint of two years back in Norway. And honestly, the best thing other than everything I learned was at that time, I also met my uh, bride-to-be uh, in LA and we are still together 30 years later. So God bless, that, that's, man. So, yeah. That's beautiful. That's, so what, yeah, that's what awesome. would burn, that is a beautiful thing, man. I'm, I'm, in, I'm in pursuit of that myself, I must say, but I'm curious what burnt would today tell burnt back then, or, you know, maybe uh, just a general piece of advice for anyone starting a business. And the reason I ask, I have a very close friend of mine who's diving into the fashion industry right now with right. a patent pending technology in a pocket square, which keeps the pocket square up. You know, if you're wearing a blazer, it's a really cool, it's a really, really cool thing, super fashionable. And I'm always curious, you know, and I would love to be able to amplify your message to anyone that's out there looking to start a business, whether that's in fashion or beyond. Right. Yeah. So listen, uh, there are a lot of lessons along the line, right? right. Uh, and along the way, but I would say in, in terms of what we just discussed, uh, it, it's hard to predict and particularly about the future. So you mm. can't predict the future. So you need to run your business, uh, with some caution back then, you know, we really, uh, the world was our oyster. We could do no wrong. And, and so, so we kind of, our philosophy was basically, you know, uh, I don't know, something along the lines of uh, sh- shoot, load, aim, or, you know, it wasn't, we, we didn't do it exactly in the proper order, right? So uh, I would just say crawl, walk, run. Uh, crawl, you, walk, you don't, run. Crawl, walk, run. Uh, very basic, but... You know, the big expansion with the new office and the new showroom and the machines and the cars and the house, that's great. That comes way down the line. That comes Mm -hmm. way down the line after you have seen sustainable success, after you have built up um, some cash on hand and, and, and you can actually weather, you know, uh, a storm. I mean, and, and, and the reality is just look at where we find ourselves today with a global pandemic, not something you could plan for, but I guarantee you there are going to be certain companies that are going to do a lot better than others. A, some companies have been operating, you know, more conservatively and they're able to weather the storm. And then B, certain companies are, of course, operated by entrepreneurs that have the ability to pivot. Right. And, and that's incredibly important, not to kind of be married to your model. I mean, it's kind of uh, very stereotypical, but innovate or die is something I also would have said to myself back then. Don't think you have figured it out. Don't, don't sit back and rest on your laurels. That is the beginning of the end. As soon as you sit back and put your feet up and say, oh, man, look, look at us. You know, look yeah. at all we did. Uh, to me, that's extremely dangerous. You, you need to kind of run the business as if it's going to go away tomorrow or going to be threatened tomorrow. Mm. So what's your advice in regard to, and listen, I'm a millennial, I'm 27 years old. I am very impatient. I love instant gratification, right? So what, what's your advice to someone that's listening to this that, you know, when it comes to that crawl, walk, run, like how do we actually, it's one thing to hear it. It's one thing to talk it, but it's another thing to actually do it. Right. So what's your advice there? Well, I think you need to master each step. So what you should do is, in my opinion, and there are many different versions of this, uh, there is one planning mechanism that's used a lot called a SWAT, a SWAT strength, weakness, opportunity, threat. Right. I think any business and any business owner can benefit from actually really sitting down and doing that for him or herself in earnest and think, what are your strengths? what are the opportunities and what's the weaknesses and the threats because uh and, and then once you have that if you can see the weaknesses all your competitors can see it too and they will come for you and the threats are general threats in the marketplace and that not all can be anticipated which is why it's important that you plan the opportunities are obviously where you should kind of keep your eyes uh, for what's happening in the future. But the strengths is where I would double down. When you know what your strengths are, be better than everybody else on that. You know, concentrate and dominate. I think that's really good advice that's often overlooked. Everyone wants to be, you know, all things to all people. You know, with social media, you're speaking to a very wide audience. 
sometimes when you do that, you can't really be heard. Mm. So if your target audience know that you don't know that you're talking to them, they can't hear you. So it doesn't make really a difference. Right. Um, yeah. So I would definitely double down on my strengths. Uh, and again, as I said, concentrate and dominate. You know, it's kind of like uh, people don't plan to fail, but they often fail to plan. Mm. Very true. Very, very true. I'm one of those people from time to time, you know, and I, I'm very transparent and vulnerable on the show. And I'll be the first to say there are many times where I'm just someone that goes, you know, like I, I just go. Uh, maybe it's the New Yorker and me born and raised here 27 years, who knows, but um, I definitely appreciate that. And I'm curious at this point to learn how you ended up getting linked up with Damon, um, who is someone that we both know. Right. Yeah, I love Damon. So uh, that was, you know, again, like everything else in life, uh, a little bit of a fluke. So I was working <laughs> at the time I mentioned Donna Karen. So I spent five right. years at Donna Karen and, and it was great. Um, but at one point after those five years, it, it was kind, kind of time to look for something new. They had become um, very uh, organized in the way they were running the business, mm. uh, which means less entrepreneurial. They didn't necessarily need me to come with a new idea. Um, they needed a steady hand on the tiller. And so, so I was looking for something that was kind of uh, flying a little closer to the ground uh, with that excitement. And so a friend of mine mentioned when I said, you know, in confidence that I was looking uh, to make a change, he said, have, have you thought about FUBU? And I hadn't even, shame on me, heard of FUBU at the time. So and and Fubu had just opened the shop and shop in Macy's. So I spent two days out of the office on the floor of Macy's. And by coincidence, back then, the Fubu shop and the DKNY shop was on the same floor, just within a couple of shops of each other. Wow. And I was so amazed because what I saw was that for every one piece that left the DKNY shop, there were three, four, five pieces leaving the Fubu shop. And uh, contrary to popular belief, there were people of all sizes, ages, races, colors buying the FUBU stuff. Because to anyone outside of just the really urban areas, it was just American fashion. It was the next generation of American fashion. And that's what I saw. And that was what's clear to me. So it was youth culture. And I, I loved that. And it was fresh. And it was kind of the emergence of a new demographic. So, um, yeah, I met, met with Damon and met with his partners. And as they say, the rest is history. So I was president of FUBU International for five years. And it was five amazing years uh, where we saw staggering growth. So that's how that happened originally. And now it has come full circle. And I'm back working today and so with, with Damon, so which which is awesome. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with my background, so maybe just very quickly because it's kind please of do. yeah, please, that, yeah. So we touched on you know some of the early stuff um, after Damon. Uh, so the CEO of Donna Karen, who hired me, went to a company called Kelwood, called me, and said, "Hey, listen, uh, I'm now at this company called Kelwood, and we're looking at the possible acquisition." And I think it would be very helpful if you could come over um, and, and look at it with us. So, so I did. And, you know, I joined them. We, we finished acquisition. And the, the company was Fat Fashion. So that was Russell Simmons yep. and Kimora Lee Simmons, Fat Farm and Baby Fat. And, you know, it was a great time for, to, to, to come over. Uh, Baby Fat had just kind of begun to, to hum. And, and, you know, I was lucky. And in a short amount of time, we had uh, really great results. We changed the operating model from being kind of a wholesale model into being all licensed. We had uh, over 30 licensees uh, and, and ended up driving you know, retail sales, probably in the vicinity of $850 uh, million. So, Amazing. you know, sizable and great stuff. Then Kelwood was acquired by a company called Sun Capital. And, um, and, and I was looking around every month. We had like a big management meeting. We sat in a conference room and, and, you know, I would look around me and in, in each month there would be, you know, fewer and fewer of the old executives there. And then 
at one day, I was the only person that had been there before the acquisition. That night, I had, by coincidence, a meeting with uh, Tommy Hilfiger. Right. And I told him, hey, Tommy, this is what's going on. I looked around, and, you know, I'm the only guy there. And Tommy was like, Bernd, it's as good as it's going to get. You need to get the hell out of there. I was like, oh, shit, that's what it means, of course. So <laughs> we, we ended up founding a company together called Star Branding. Uh, and this is now 2009. So Tommy, his brother, Andy Hilfiger, uh, Joe Lamastra, who runs operations for Tommy. So we created Star Branding with the premise that stars can be brands. Right. Uh, and under that Star Branding umbrella, we did a number of really high-profile transactions. The best-known one is Jennifer Lopez and Mark Anthony, uh, where we did what's called a DTR, direct-to-retail deal with Coles. And it's billed as the largest celebrity deal ever done. And wow. they were purchasing guarantees from Coles of $3.5 billion. It's very sizable. And once you do that, you know, uh, once you have the $3.5 billion deal, every uh, you know, celebrity out there worth their salt want their own $3.5 billion deal. So of we course. ended up having yeah, a massive deal pipeline. So in short order, we did then a deal with Universal Music Group uh, and their uh, merch division, Bravado. And we did uh, a line for... Uh, Steven Tyler, we did uh, the Rolling Stones, we did American Idol. And then Eddie Lampert from Sears Kmart came and he wanted to hire me as a CEO for a new division they were starting called Shop Your Way Brands. I didn't think it was so good because even then, that several years ago, uh, Sears was not necessarily on the best of uh, financial footings. So uh, I didn't think it was the right thing to become a Sears executive, but we took it on on a contractual basis. I became acting CEO of Shop Your Way Brands, and we launched the collections Nicki Minaj and Adam Levine into 500 fully fixtured Kmart stores. And those businesses jumped out to around $200 million. So a lot of fun. Amazing. Uh, yeah. yeah. And then now full circle, you know, fast forwarding, those contracts eventually expired. Uh, I ended up uh, working with Bethany Frankel from Housewives of New York. Nice. Um, yeah, so she had the Skinny Girl brand and uh, created kind of the, the global lifestyle. It was part of the global lifestyle push for Skinny Girl. Um, and then involved in a, a few other startups, of course, and sitting on a few boards. And then full circle back with Damon and the Shark Group. And he has a partnership with Catherine Zeta-Jones. She has a brand yep, called Casa Zeta-Jones, yep. just launching. Yeah, you know that. So, and we're just <laughs> launching. We launched footwear a couple of weeks ago, launched actually uh, cosmetics and beauty yesterday. Um, so I'm working closely with, with, with Damon and the team, Ted, the Shark Group, and, and Catherine. And, and it's a lot of fun. So it's awesome. I love to hear yeah, that. That's, yeah, that's the answer. So That's awesome stuff. Cool. Yeah, yeah very cool. Stuff. So what do you find are the similarities between these brands that, I mean, listen, you took from what I, from what I understand, correct me if I'm wrong, Bernd, when you entered the, you know, entered the business with FUBU, they were at 70 million and brought them to 700 million over the course of the four or five years you were with them. Right. And so on so, and so, so forth. Yeah. I don't get to take that credit. Of course, I was part of the team. And it was sure. a great team and there were a lot of strong people that, that did that. But yes, I was indeed part of that team and we did have that type of success. It was really cool. Yeah. So what do you find are the similarities between these brands you work with in regards to how you bring value to them and, and what you see that you know, someone else could take away from that? Yeah. So, so from my vantage point, what the brands, all great brands have you know, certain qualities in common, in my opinion, and that is sure. they, they have to be credible and authentic and aspirational. So credible, authentic, and aspirational. Because the consumer has so much information today, you can't do make-believe. So great brands, it, it really starts with authenticity. And that's why when you do a, a celebrity brand, sometimes celebrity brands don't work. And, and more often than not, it's because it's, it's not authentic or credible in the mind of the consumer that this particular celebrity is actually in the know and in the trenches and creating this brand. Mm. Um, so, so, you know, authentic, credible, and aspirational. They all have that in common. All the successful brand stories that I've been part of have that in common. I think um, what I bring is maybe a very keen kind of understanding of the value of brand. Right. Um, that, that's kind of what I like to focus on and how to monetize the value of brand. 
So, because once you have a strong brand, which, you know, and what is a brand, it's really uh, any type of distinguishing factor that sets your product apart or product or services apart from the competition in, in, in the eye of the consumer. That's really right. a brand. That's what a brand you know? is, yes. A brand is something that's you know, ma- makes you unique, right? Uh, but once you have that and you kind of repeat your message and double down, you're building what we call brand equity, which is the value mm-hmm. of your brand in the mind of the consumer. Um, right. And, and, and strong brands have strong equity, brand equity. And with that brand equity, you, you can kind of take the brand to the next level. And one of the reasons, and this is important, I do want to say this, one of the reasons I'm such a believer in brand is once you have that brand and you have something that sets you apart, uh, you have opportunities to mark your product up the right way, to market it the right way, to position it the right way. Uh, The brand allows you to connect with the consumer on an emotional level. So all of a sudden, there are all these reasons for a consumer to interact with your brand. If you don't have that, you are left to really only compete on price Mm. because if if there is nothing else that sets your brand apart from the competition or you, 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 you can only be measured on price and people are going to buy, of course, what's the best value or the lowest price. And, and the problem with that, it's not, I I applaud any entrepreneur that's doing business, but if you're not, if you don't have a brand, I'm going to argue that you're leaving money on the table because you're going through the same effort, but now you're transacting and there's always someone out there that's willing, uh, maybe a little more desperate or willing to work on a lower price, lower margins. So I often like to say that you'll find yourself in a debt spiral race to the bottom. Uh, If you don't have something that sets you apart, if you can't use those other parameters that comes with a brand, you're in a debt spiral race to the bottom, which is not great because you're only competing on price. That's a tough place to be. And if that's not bad enough, each and every time you have to reinvent yourself because, again, there's no distinguishing factor. You're just a product and a price or a service and a price. Each and every time you have to go back in and reinvent yourself and do it all over again. When you have a brand, you bring lawyer, you, you, you build loyalty. You build a relationship uh, with your consumers and with your followers. Right. No, I you, love that. You, yeah, and you establish trust. And here's, you know, and, and I didn't come up with this, but, you know, trust leads to thrust. So mm. when you have the trust, you can kind of go from there and, and, and drive traffic and, and build momentum. So um, I, I like to think that I bring a keen focus on brand. And case in point, you know, speaking to the value, uh, we touched on Fat Fashions and, and Russell and we touched on, on Skinny Girl. And just a couple of very quick examples. So when Calwood acquired Fat Fashions, they didn't buy the company. Didn't, there were no employees that came over, didn't buy any machinery, didn't buy any, any inventory. They bought the IP rights, so just the intellectual property rights of Fat Farm right. and Baby Fat, for $140 million. They paid $140 million just for the intellectual property rights of the brand that Russell and Kimura built. So that's the power of brand. So in addition to having been in business for all those years, done great business, been profitable, pocketed the money from you know being successful fashion moguls, that company was sold, and or I take that back, the brands were sold for an additional $140 million. Yeah. Wow. And similar, take Skinny Girl, Bethany Frankel, much to her credit, she was one of the housewives of New York, she was on the show, she came on, uh, up with the concept of, created the concept of Skinny Girl Cocktails, Skinny Girl Margaritas. And, and again, she sold, not the company, not even all the IP rights. She only sold the rights to the alcoholic beverage to be inventory. Mm. So simply just the IP rights, the intellectual property rights to alcoholic beverage, she sold it for $100 million. Not too shabby for, you know, uh, a, a creation and then just building the brand equity over a few years. So that's yeah. the power of brand. That's what brand can do for you. 
That's incredible. And I think that gives a lot of emphasis as to why that's so important, right? A lot of people are just like, oh, let me just market, market, market. But when you focus on the brand and, and that, you know, that's incredible. And I appreciate you breaking it down like that. But I want to transition here. I want to make sure that we're talking about the book, The Billion Dollar Branding Blueprint. I'm excited to read this, Vern. I haven't read it yet. I'm a very slow reader. I'm excited to get to the end of this book, but I'm curious why you wrote this at this point in your journey. All right, I appreciate that, and thanks for bringing it up. And, and you know, it is a lot of what we're talking about is, of course, covered in the book. Right. It, it's not a coincidence that it's called the Billion Dollar Branding Blueprint. So it is the blueprint, blueprint for how to build these brands and then how to monetize the brands. Mm. Um, and, and the reason why I wrote it, honestly, it was just, I felt at one point, I don't know if you sometimes have this, where you end up you know, making a list or you need to write stuff down because there's a lot going on in your world. That, that was kind of what was happening to me. There was just so much going on in the space of brand, and I felt I had it everywhere. I wrote something here, there was an email there. I, I, I took notes, you know, a few pages. And then some people had you know, heard about me and I was asked, to, to speak. So I was a speaker at a few events and I had my notes for that. I was like, you know what? There, there is so much information about brand and branding here. I thought it might behoove me to just organize it better. And that was really the beginning of the book. And then of course, um, it's the first time I ever did this. So I had some people help me uh, organize the information properly and, and, and all of that. And we did some podcasts and, and some of those podcasts became kind of the skeletal, you know, premise of the book. And then from there, yeah, it just grew to what you have in your hands now. I love that. Now, yeah. what do, if people could only take away one thing from this book, what do you want that one thing to be? So it is probably doubling down uh, on the significance of brand. Uh, okay. since, 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 you know, it is as I said, the billion dollar branding blueprint. Uh, and there isn't one singular thing, but, but I do believe very much in, in being strategic, you know, with your business. So I, I believe a lot in, in, in being smart about why you are in business and, 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 and what, what purpose you serve. So I think, and, and that's all in the book, but I think uh, asking yourself, you know, some fundamental questions early on in, in, in your journey as an entrepreneur, I think it's pretty important. So such as, you know, who am I? Why am I here? What, 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 what is my objective? Who is right. my audience? What, what value do I bring? Because the reality, people don't need another product or another brand in their life. Uh, sure. So you have to... You have to solve some type of problem. You have to bring people a solution and, and you have to bring value. I think the worst reason to go into to business is because you want to be rich or get rich quick. That is not a good reason to get into business. And most likely, if that's the premise for you entering the business world, you will fail. Um, so I think you need to put all of that away and then you need to roll up your sleeves and have an attitude, you know, like, uh, in essence, a service attitude where you come in and say, I'm, I'm going to service a market, I'm going to solve a problem. And if I do all of that really well, and then I identify my strengths, and, and I double down on those, concentrate and dominate, then maybe the outcome will ultimately be that I end up building a successful business, and then there will, there will be financial rewards at the end of that journey. But you have to allow for there to be a journey. I, I think that in our Insta world today, you, you mentioned the word, you know, instant gratification. Yeah. Uh, there is a lot of that. And, and I'm not poo-pooing. It's entirely possible. You know, you see people having the ability to monetize their social media following. It's a new asset. It didn't used to be there. Uh, so I'm not poo-pooing that. I'm not saying that that's not real. It's very real. But it's not real for very many people. So mm. it's real for a limited number of people that can do that successfully and have it be sustainable. However, building a meaningful business, providing a meaningful service, uh, any entrepreneur can do that if they kind of come up with a game plan and just have the ability to put one foot in front of the other and build. Um, and that's kind of what the blueprint does. It gives you the steps to do that. I love that. 
Now, Bernd, you mentioned podcasts, and I'm sure you've been in hundreds upon hundreds of consultations. What do you consider a question you wished more people would ask you, and how would you answer it? Wow, that's a good question. I haven't been asked that question. So I'm glad. Um, yeah. Well, I, I, I think, you know, from my vantage point, again, just circ- circling back. Um, and I do get versions of the question, but I do think uh, it, it has to do, again, with just the strategic value of being meticulous and building your business. Okay. A lot of people get lost in, I've done a lot of celebrity brands. I end up getting a lot of questions, you know, along the lines of, what was it like to work with Jennifer Lopez? Mm. Or there is an anecdote if someone has read the book and we ended up spending two days in in Jennifer's closet because, you know, uh, when you're creating a brand, you very often, not very often, always, you have to develop what I call a brand DNA. And the brand DNA is kind of the true essence of what the brand is. You know, why didn't Nicki Minaj and Jennifer Lopez collections look exactly the same? They were both celebrities. And, and why does skinny girl jeans look different from those two? Well, because the brand DNA is different. They, there are certain uh, inherent elements of those brands that are fundamentally different and they're a function of uh, the founders and, and, and all of that. And, it, and to me, that's, you know, it's part science, it's part art. But it's very real. And if you don't understand and if you can't kind of decode what makes the brand unique, you will not succeed. Um, So I I would love to have more questions about, you know, brand DNA and and the essence of building a successful business and less about, hey, I heard you spent two days in Jennifer Lopez's closet. What was that like? And we get a lot of those questions. <laughs> I'm sure you do. I'm sure you do. I love it. And Vern, I really appreciate you, you know, with all the transparency and vulnerability here. On the way out of these episodes, I want to respect your time. On the way out of these episodes, we asked three questions, uh, which, you know, are personal burn questions. And I'm really curious to hear the answers. You know, the first one is kind of cliche, but it always serves a good purpose, especially because it's a, you know, kind of serving the second question up. But what is, or what do you consider to be the best piece of advice you've received on your journey, whether personal, business, et cetera? The best piece of advice. Well, there's probably been, you know, a few along the way. But, um, and it depends on whether we are talking about uh, as entrepreneur or, or, or working your way up in a company. But one that kind of comes to mind that very often, and it applies both places, is uh, stay in your lane. Mm. And, and, um, and I'm mentioning that there are others, but the reason why I'm picking this up today, the stay in your lane has to do with, again, not spreading yourself too thin not trying to be all things to all people. And um, if you are in, in a work setting, uh, it's easy to get caught up in and thinking that you have all the answers. But uh, the success of, you know, whether you are part of uh, someone else's company or it's your own company, you can't do it all on your own. You have to have team. You have to have a successful team. And, and, Great business leaders, you'll hear them say it all the time that they surround themselves with smart people. They surround themselves with, you know, people that know stuff that they don't know. So uh, stay in your lane to me is simply a way of saying, uh, be good at what you're good at and allow other people to be good at their things. Right. Um, I think that's pretty solid advice. I love that. That's so awesome. So what do you find to be a piece of advice that you didn't want to hear at the time it was given to you, but it proved to be true over time. Well, there are a lot of those. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, if we go back to the early days, you know, again, if you go back to, uh, uh, to for instance, uh, the, the Nor Partners situation, it would just be to listen to the business people that knew better. Mm-hmm. So when we, you know, fools, young guys from Norway, started to carry our own paper and thinking that we knew better, you know, than the established factoring companies that have been doing business in the market for years and years and years. It was obviously 
in retrospect, ridiculous. Right. Seemed like a good idea at the time, but uh, the business people gave us very clear advice on how we should manage the business. We just thought we knew better. So I would say uh, along the lines, yeah, listen to the experts. That's that's pretty good. Yeah, and you don't. You may not always want to, and you may not always like the message, but there's a reason why they're experts. That is for sure. And that's exactly why we're amplifying your message today. So I'm glad we're able to do that again. But last question for you, Bernd, if you could only give one piece of advice for the rest of your life, meaning if you're hopping on podcasts, you're hitting the stage, you're writing another book, if you could only give one piece of advice for the rest of your life, it could be business related, it could be personal, it could be about having a 30 year marriage with your significant other, it could be about anything, what would it be? I, I, I think it is be of service. Honestly, okay. I think I really I think be of service because at the end of the day, if you bring value to others, a lot of stuff will come back to you. You know, I have a saying and it's not mine, but, you know, your network is your net worth. Mm. So if you are bringing value to your network, they will rely upon you and come back. And that's kind of how you remain relevant. So, yeah, be of service, bring value to others. I love that. Being of service. I mean, listen, it brings me the utmost fulfillment at the beginning of COVID. You know, you mentioned New York city was the epicenter in the beginning of this. Like I felt compelled and especially because my significant other's a nurse, uh, we raised $15,000. We were feeding the frontline workers here in New York city, you know, being of service. It's the best, you know, it's the best. And I resonate with that. So I really appreciate you sharing it. And, you know, it's great to hear because I I find it to be true as well, you know, but um, I'm going to have all of your social links in the show notes of this episode. I'm going to have the website where people can get the book. All of that will be in the show notes. But is there anything that I might not be aware of that you want to, you know, get out there and amplify some more? You have any special projects going on or um, anywhere that you're hanging out the most? I'll make sure that, you know, we're letting people know. Oh, I appreciate that very much. I, I do have a number of things going on, uh, but none of which I can speak to as of yet. Okay. So I'm either under an NDA or they're not fully baked. I'm a firm believer in not putting stuff out there until it's ready to be out there. But Agreed. I, I, I greatly appreciate your time. I greatly appreciate you inviting me on. And congr- congratulations to you for having built such a successful podcast. I think it's amazing at such a young age really very cool and of course looked at some of uh, the other guests and uh, I'm, I'm truly impressed by everything you have accomplished so so congrats on that and thank you for amplifying my message i'm gonna do uh, one cheap last you know plug that is I the love book it. right there <laughs> <laughs> billion dollar branding blueprint thank you so much Thank you, Burnt. I appreciate it, man. And there you have it from the $6 billion man, the man behind the brands, our friend Burnt Ullman. Huge shout out to Burnt for hopping on here, taking the time out of his day, sharing his experiences with vulnerability nonetheless. That's a huge key right there. Very vulnerable, very transparent, and that's exactly how all of us resonate. That's exactly how all of us learn. So super excited for you to be able to tune into this and really grateful for the fact that you did and you got this far in this episode. With that being said, as mentioned earlier, you sharing this episode with the people in your circle, if you found this to be of value, which I'm pretty sure you did, you got to this point in this episode, it is so monumental. You can be that beacon of light. Share this on Instagram, share it with Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, the group chats, the employees, the coworkers, and beyond. It will be so meaningful to them that you are thinking about them, that you are looking to help them improve their life in one way or another. And I really mean that and I think when you actually do it and you see it and you get that reaction you get that butterfly feeling it feels really freaking good so I just throw that out there to throw it out there and to connect with Burnt you could head over to the show notes of this episode where you can find his socials the website where you can get that book and all the good stuff that was talked about in this episode now until next time everyone be blessed peace